I'm Steve Kay, Senior Economist and Coordinator of the Atlanta Fed's America Center, and I'm talking to Professor Dan Bresnitz of the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs and the College of Management of the Georgia Institute of Technology, who's written the book, Run of the Red Queen, Government, Innovation, Globalization, and Economic Growth in China. We're going to discuss innovation, economic growth, and what China may teach us about other emerging economies. Dan, thanks for joining us today. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me here. How would you characterize China's industrial innovation strategy, and how important has it been to China's rapid economic development? So let me just start by saying that one of the problems I think that we have when we debate China in the U.S. and in Europe as well is exactly the word that you use, China and strategy, as if China has a strategy just one strategy and then China leads. While in reality what we argue in our book is uh, that China's real development is very, very different than the vision of the central government. So there is a strategy, but it's not led by the state. It happened because of state actions and because of the political economy of what is allowed or not allowed to do in China and what has happened to the global production networks, if you will, how we produce services and things. But it's definitely not what the central Chinese government hoped to happen, and it's obviously not what they're trying to do at the moment, which is probably a problem for China. So when you talk about innovation strategy, really you're talking about innovation strategies, plural. Mm -hmm. What are the innovation strategies that have been successful for China? So for China, there has been one strategy that has been truly successful for organizations and for China as a whole. There are variations of these strategies, and indeed every region of China, of the most successful one, has a very different model or sub-variant of that strategy. But we call this strategy the run of the Red Queen. Basically is to accept the technological edge, if you will, have the capabilities and capacity to play on that edge without trying to push it forward, which will means that Chinese companies can immediately offer services, second-generation innovation, the creation of products based on those new technologies that have been developed elsewhere. So it will be either from a very quick copier and changer of ideas, Baidu and Google, to the fact that I don't know if any one of you in the Fed have an iPhone, but I presume that at least at home you have an iPhone. iPhone would never be created without China, the way we think about it. If you think about what happened in iPhone 4 and the problem with antenna, and you look into the details, you find out that the Taiwanese-Chinese producer have told them that there is going to be a problem with this antenna. And therefore, the Chinese counterpart or partner of Apple is not just an assembler. It does a lot of the high-level design. It has a lot of knowledge, which Apple does not have, about how to make an iPhone work together and what will be the problem even if it gets specs from Apple. So China's strategy Mm -hmm. is not to do the new product invention, but rather to work on the innovation on the production side. 
on the production size and on follow-up, if you want to call it follow-up or changing innovation as well. So once you develop the product or an idea, and it's obvious that there is a market for it, there's a very large set of second-generation innovation that start to happen, which really, all those innovation are the reasons why we can sit in this office. Each one of us have our mobile technology that allow us to do things that 30, 40 years ago, a room full of computers would never allow us to do, and we hold it now in our head. A lot of what caused this to happen is what we disdainingly called second-generation innovation, incremental. But it's true innovation. It's just not, if you want to call it, inventure or genesis. And China has been extremely good at that, going up from the assembly to the logistic, how to produce stuff. Mm -hmm. And it has been able to do that also because the way we do things, what people call the global economy, has significantly changed since the 70s and 80s. So if you want to understand China, you have to understand two things. You have to understand what has happened and is happening in China, which, let us all remember, is still officially a communist economy ruled by the Communist Party, and what happens in the way that stuff is being traded, sold, and produced worldwide, both products and services. Those two processes led to what China is today. And as China grew, it, of course, changed the way we make our things. So is there something about that strategy that other emerging markets can adapt? To a certain degree, yes. And some of them have already adapted. We all heard, at least in the last four or five years, the name Vietnam at least once, but other countries as well. You're the Latin American expert in this table. But to some degree, if you think about how our economies are growing, you can see that some of them are doing very similar things, if not necessarily in ICT, which is the domain which I focused on in this book. Commodities, for example, extraction of commodities, mining technologies. You know, Chile didn't invent the mines but they certainly, from what I know, and you should correct me if I'm wrong, have the leading companies in mining technologies, including remote mining technologies. So the Chilean did not invent the remote controls, and they obviously not invented mining, but now they're leading in those technologies. So when it comes to commodities, trade between China and Latin America is asymmetrical in the sense that Latin America ships a lot of primary products to China. China sells Latin America finished products. Mm -hmm. Sounds just like the U.S. <laughs> in Latin America a few years ago. Well, governments in the region are not, not all of them are happy about that. Brazil's president recently complained to the Chinese and said, we want to sell you more value-added products. We need to have more balance with respect to trade. What are the prospects of that happening? Actually, higher than what they were in the past for few reasons. Some of it is political. Metal, company making Barbies. You have kids. Do you have any daughters by any chance? No. No daughters. Do you know anyone who has daughters and tried to buy Barbies? 
two or three Christmas ago. Was there a shortage of Barbies? No, there was a problem with a lead paint in China, in just one region in China, but it immediately means that Christmas sells by metal, or let's call it under stress. It ended up by Mattel actually having to apologize to the Chinese and Mattel finding out that they have no options because they have no clue how to produce their bobbies anymore and no capacities to produce them. My guess is that with more and more of those accident happens, nuclear catastrophe in Japan, health scares, some of the most faithful CEOs of American companies who trust China might want to do various backup options, which means moving some of their production to other places. That's one opening. The second is that China itself, if there was no financial crisis, probably would have even tried to get rid of a really low end. You saw it in the Pearl River Delta where they didn't want to do the just simple plastic injection and anymore. And just before the financial crisis, they forcefully, speaking about toys, plastic toys, a lot of those companies went out of business, and the government actually wanted them to get out of business. And then the financial crisis happened, and they changed tack. Speaking about structured uncertainty again. But that's another opening. And Brazil, if you spoke about Brazil, probably have much more sophisticated companies than some of the other emerging countries as well. And they should be able to develop or retain some capacities, which I'm not sure we have done in the U.S., by the way. So what do China's innovation strategies mean for the United States? Let's go for the optimistic side and then go to the pessimistic side, okay? So the optimistic side, those are, they are complementary. So I have a good friend and former mentor called Ed Steinfeld, published a book called Playing Our Game, and he is very upbeat about it. We just talked about the fact that if you want an iPad in a price you can actually afford and have it in the market two or three months after somebody thought about it, you must have China. There's no way around it. And therefore, we get very large financial gains. China gets a lot of jobs. And supposedly both sides are happy. On the slightly flip side of this, this means we have true interdependencies. Okay, so if in the past economists, political scientists, whoever talked about interdependencies, economic interdependencies, Norman Angels just before World War I explained why we will never have war because everybody will be poor again, that is true. But now we have true real interdependency. You can really don't have your products done even. Probably most of the things you were without China. And it goes into some critical domains as well. Which means that while the economic logics will suggest that we are going to have a wonderful future where everybody will sing Kumbaya and we all grow together, Trust issues, nature of power, means that the ability to have misunderstanding and have them accelerated, and for a very good reason, very quickly, is also heightened. So a stupid raw about technology standard might end up having a huge trade war. Add to that that China is big, growing, 
at some point, probably already now, will want to be recognized as a new global power. What we talked about, uncertainty and the fact that nobody, I'm not sure even most of the Chinese, actually agree about what China should do in the world as it retry to understand what it is. And you have a recipe for disasters. <laughs> and disasters that will be true disasters because we can't have some of our basic products without China and not sure they can have some of their products or at least new innovation without us. So on the one side, if we have great leaders, work very carefully on understanding each side and making sure you have communication level that will prevent those misunderstandings from escalating, because those misunderstandings will happen probably in every week on something, great. And especially if we refound our balance in the U.S. and realized how to create jobs, which is a completely different discussion. If we don't, and especially if both sides don't have an agreement about how the world should look like two, five, ten years from now, we might be entering a very interesting period in the Chinese proverb of the uh, sense of a word may you live in interesting times, which is supposedly a horrible curse. Above, I'm not sure I ever heard it in China, but we claim it's Chinese, so be it. Dan, I'd like to thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Again, we've been speaking today with Professor Dan Bresnitz of the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs and the College of Management of the Georgia Institute of Technology. He's the author of Run of the Red Queen, Government, Innovation, Globalization, and Economic Growth in China. This concludes our EconSouth Now podcast on innovation and economic growth in China. For more information, please see the second quarter 2011 edition of EconSouth magazine, where you'll find my article on China's trade and investment ties with Latin America. On our website, www.frbatlanta.org, you can read the full article about this topic or subscribe to EconSouth in print. Thanks for listening, and please return for more podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at podcast at frbatlanta.org.